Welcome back to Cosmic Soup. Today's guest is a veteran in the senior living industry where he spent 23 years managing communities, directing operations, spearheading acquisitions, and organizing pre-opening setups for multiple ownership groups with Leisure Care, a Seattle-based senior housing management company. In 2012, he joined the Inland Group in Spokane, Washington, and was instrumental in opening and operating communities, achieving an outstandingly high level of resident satisfaction and staff development, balanced with highly proficient expense control and revenue growth. Today, he is a principal consultant with us here at Third Third Marketing and Culinary Coach and is the founder and owner of Old Pueblo Placement Services based out of Tucson, Arizona. Please welcome to the show, Cecil Rinker, Operations Genie. Cecil, thanks for being here, man. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Here. So today we're going to talk a bit about operations since you're an expert in all. And really, we want to touch on a hot button, a burning issue of workforce but before all that, when you think about all the types of communities that are out there, all the communities you've seen, all that's done right and all that's done wrong, riddle me this, Batman. Imagine that you have the backing to create your own community that's perfect for you as you age. How would it be? What would it look like? What would you design from that crazy brain of yours? Well, I think that, first of all, I think we're looking at a generation of people who are looking at a retirement that looks different than their parents. Um, I know I'm certainly one of those folks. So, you know, I've, I've been asked this question before and I've, I've said before that, you know, I, I think that people who are looking to just enter into the retirement community um, setting are much more independent today. They want to remain as independent as possible. If they need a little assisted living service, they want that done privately in their home. Um, and I think that what I would see as a, as, a, as a model retirement community in my own mind would be where the front door of my apartment leads outside and the back door of my apartment leads back into the community. Um, I think that uh, folks would, you know, I know that personally I would, I would like to be able to walk out of my door, get into my car um, and come and go as, as I please. But when I want to participate in that community and the services and the activities, I could go out my back door and I could be a part of the community as well. I'd like to see a community where there are a lot more young people. We have young people working in our communities, but we struggle, I believe, to, to bridge the generational gap. And I personally, at this age of my life, 55, I like being around young people. I like to be able to um, talk with them and find out what's going on in their head. I learn from young people. Um, and I believe that that young people have a lot to learn from the seniors as well. So I would like to see a community that has is much more inclusive, um, that brings generations together and provides opportunities for people to remain as independent as possible. So in your, your vision there, when you say that you'd like to see more young people, you would specifically like them as residents in the community as opposed to just employees. I could see them as residents in the community. I could see uh, community spaces being created for young people to come and take college courses. Uh, I could see spaces being offered to um, uh, groups from from the city or, or the market area where you're located. Um, you know, as far as organizations go, there, there's lots of organizations I think that seniors still participate in. It would be easier for them to be able to um, remain active in organizations if they were if they were closer by and they were easier to get to. So I, I think that. Yes, Mike, I believe that all of the above would be true. What would be the incentive for somebody, a, a quote unquote younger person, if you will, to live in a community like that? Would that just be something where it would be set up kind of like an apartment and there just is a mix of age groups and demographics? 
I would. I think that's a really good idea. Um, I, I believe that there are seniors out there that would like to live with younger people. I'm not necessarily saying multifamily housing where you have families of children, um, although I believe that younger children are very important in, in, in the senior communities um, because we are, as a, as a society, growing very, very much so apart from our, our blood relatives as far as grandchildren go, grandparents living in different states, grandchildren being raised in different states. Um, I think that there's a need for those programs to be in there. But as far as looking at who's living in a community, I think that, you know, we could look at how we could lower the age and, and get people in their 30s and their 40s who might be interested um, in, in living in a community with, with multi-generational people, um, people older than they are. Uh, I believe that we could also create opportunities where people could live in the community and maybe work at the community as well, volunteer at the community. Um, those are all things that I think that you know, we could put on the table. And I, I think that if I had all of the resources backing me, I think that we could come up with a great plan for that. That's pretty outside the box thinking, actually. And I really like the concept. I also really like the concept of being able to have access via your front door and your back door to different functions of the community. And if it was set up in kind of almost a courtyard fashion where everybody's back doors opened up to the hub of said community, then yeah, you've got your privacy entrance and you've also got your, I want to go out and do something today entrance. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, absolutely. that's killer. That's a really, really great concept. I was asked this question about 20 years ago. Um, and at that time, <laughs> it was kind of far out there, which is now in, in 2020, it's becoming a, probably more of a uh, reality than, than it was 20 years ago. But my thought 20 years ago was that a retirement community should look like a, a, a mall um, that, you know, you could enter and come in and out of. The apartments, of course, would be grouped around the outside perimeters. The inside would be multiple um multiple spaces, maybe storefronts, um, maybe a daycare center, maybe a food court, um, all of those kinds of things that, that I might be interested in as a senior, which also might interest a younger person as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Just And when you were talking about it, that was kind of where I was thinking. I mean, I didn't quite get the mall vision, but now that you say it like that, that exactly makes sense because that is how malls are set up with their rear service doors and their front doors to the storefronts, and you can kind of get access to everything. It's just reversed. Um, that's fantastic. It gives the opportunity also for for a retirement community or a developer to have multiple. Um, let's just just use food service as an example. Multiple food service outlets. I mean, if we could have a formal dining room setting, we could have. Um, you know, a more of a, you know, maybe, maybe even a fast food offering, maybe, maybe delis, maybe bakeries. Um, the, the beauty about that is, is that currently right now with the difficulty it is to find staffing in the retirement communities, you could build these spaces in a mall like setting and you could lease the space out. So you generate revenue by, by building the space, allowing somebody else to manage it, program it and, and staff it. And so you're providing a lot more choices for seniors, and you are not taking on the responsibility of trying to staff all of those, um, if you will, satellite restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. And that does also help subsidize the operational cost if you have people coming in helping to kind of support the the income of, of the building itself. You know, you're not having to have the facility foot all of the bills for, say, the food service programs or maybe the, the retail programs or the volunteer programs that could all be 
you know, partially paid for by people that come into the community as, I don't know, vendors, if that's the right word. Absolutely. And, and of course, the community would have to adopt a philosophy to allow some of the public in. Sure. And uh, I've seen that before with, you know, on a very, very small scale, we've opened up communities. I've, I helped to open up communities in the past where, um, well, here in Tucson, Arizona, one of the first communities to have a liquor license um, opened here in probably 2007. And we, when we got the liquor license, we, we looked at, you know, the fact that the residents would enjoy that. Maybe their family members, maybe their friends would stop by and enjoy the, you know, the happy hours and the, and the, and the parties and the sporting events that go on in the bar. But then we went one step further and said, well, why not the neighborhood? Why not we get involved in the neighborhood and, and send out flyers and tell the neighbors, Hey, if you want to come in and join us with the Sunday football game and, and happy hour at the bar, then please feel free to come on in. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there's been a big push over the past 10, 15 years to really take food service to another level, uh, putting in a, a, um, a system for tracking sales, uh, a system for charging people, a system for using credit cards. All of those things now are becoming pretty normal in our industry. So it would be very, a very small leap to be able to invite the public inside of a, a retirement community. It really is not that big of a leap when you think about it from a like a logical point of view. It doesn't seem like it would be that difficult to just kind of shift the equation a little bit and just kind of it all comes down to changing your perception of what it could be. At the end of the day, you're only limited by your imagination. And one of the themes that I see as recurring is that, well, we've always done it this way. And I, I hear that every day. Well, it has always been this way. So why should we change it now? Why should we change the formula for senior living? Why should we change the formula for the kinds of food or the kinds of people that we let in or the kinds of people that the residents have access to? And it really just comes down to changing your thinking. And that is where you are ahead of the curve, my friend. Thanks. Well, you know, just to follow up on that, too, I think that when we look at operations, we're constantly looking at ways to improve operations in the senior housing uh, industry. Um, what worked today may not work tomorrow. You know, what worked three years ago may not work two years from now. What failed two years ago may work next year. And I know that sounds confusing, but in our industry, um, we are constantly changing and trying to accommodate many different people under one roof. So an average community of 150 apartments, you're looking at possible 200, 225 residents when you're counting in the, the double occupancy with, with, um, with seniors and spouses. So when we're looking at, when we're looking at the population, it's ever changing. Uh, the average move out for retirement community is about seven people per month. Uh, those are people who are maybe moving off to a higher level of care. Maybe they're moving back to be closer with families. Um, and many of our residents pass on uh, to the next stage in life or the afterlife. But what I'm saying is, is that when those seven people move out, seven new people move in, they may have different ideas of what food service looks like. Maybe the new seven people moving in don't want to eat dinner at four o'clock. They want to eat dinner at 630. Uh, maybe the new people moving in don't want to have fried chicken and fried okra and fried fish on Fridays. They want more um, uh, farm to table kind of dining. Um, so we have to constantly be thinking that our operations is ever changing as well. It's, it can't be stagnant. And that's why I say I use an example that, you know, I had a community that I was, was working with where there were 300 residents coming to dinner every day and they all showed up at the same time because the dining room opened up at four o'clock. Right. Um, that did not work. 
And so a program was implemented where people were taking, um, took a time that they wanted to eat. Everybody was assigned a time and it reduced the pressure on the staff. It gave better service and there were less wait times for meal service. And that worked beautifully for about three years. And then it stopped working again. And as we looked and looked and looked and tried to figure out another way, we ended up going back to the open seated dining and allowing people to come back in whenever they wanted to. And that worked. And it worked again for another year or so. And then we were back into a situation where it wasn't working. So it really was not that the idea or the implementation of a new operations for food service was wrong. It was right at the time. And then things changed and people changed as people left and new people moved in. We had to we had to change course and we had to adapt to the new to the new folks there. Yeah. And as far as the the uh, demographic changing, as far as ages of residents and things like that, you've also got administration changes that are coming from different generations who grew up with different ideas about food and and operations. So people that are running the show now have had a different perspective on things. So um, I did want to ask you. So how did you get involved in the senior living industry? I mean, what was your catalyst for, uh, for wanting to do this? Well, I used food service there as an example. That's how I entered into the senior, senior housing communities. Um, it would have been 1994 up until that point. Um, most of my time was spent working in hotels and uh, fine dining. Um, I thought that would be the career for the rest of my life. But as it turns out, I, I, I had an opportunity to go help um, a retirement community here locally in Tucson, and they needed help with their food service. Um, I was able to go in and bring some ideas and things that were uh, carryovers from the hotel restaurant industry. Um, I watched the senior housing community from that time, which was um, called restaurant style dining. And uh, from a batch cooking perspective, everything was made. Uh, ahead of time and it was plated and it was served by servers, but it was still a buffet. I mean, basically you were steam table, you know, cooking a lot of different um, uh, foods and then plating them up and sending them out in a restaurant style setting. So the leap from restaurant style to why can't we just be a restaurant um, was really uh, kind of a light bulb that went off that <laughs> was was really something that was standing there right in front of us. And, and it all came back to when we were developing, how did we develop those kitchens? How did we build those kitchens? What did we, what did we use for um, uh, standard equipment? And once we made that leap and started putting in the things that allowed our, our teams in the food service department to make breakfast to order and to make um, expand lunch offerings and to um, – expand the dinner menus and, 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 and make a steak when somebody ordered the steak, instead of cooking up 15, 20 steaks and then serving them out. Obviously we know the steak is probably getting tougher by the minute when, when you're waiting for somebody to order it. Um, so those are all things that I think that, that were, um, were important to make that leap. It's clear that you've really dedicated your life to this business and uh, do you see yourself this is just this is you now this is this is what you're going to do forever for the rest of your life i believe so you know that was a, that was an epiphany i had not too long ago when i really started to, to reflect and look at my life as a whole um 
I was one of those kids who, who you know, at, at 12 years old, I, I wanted to be at grandma's house all the time. And that did not change. My grandparents died when I was 16, but I spent an exorbitant amount of time with, with both of them, hanging out with my grandfather, you know, taking trips in the truck around country roads and visiting his old friends at country stores, um, to staying up later than my bedtime as a kid playing dominoes with my grandmother and her friends and my great grandmother. I was fortunate enough to have her till I was 19 years old. Um, and then I left, you know, after everybody passed and I left Virginia and moved to Arizona, I found myself working in a, in a hotel here in Tucson. Um, that's pretty, pretty well known, at least in the state, uh, called the Arizona Inn. And the Inn had a reputation of repeat guests that came back and had been coming there for over 40 years. So their clientele was in their 70s and 80s. So when I left the inn and entered the industry uh, in 1994, there was it was very little difference in the clientele that I was already serving. Uh, I did some home health care uh, when I was younger as well. And I just found that I am most comfortable with people who are a lot older than I am. I, was, I, I feel like there is a... Um, there's a connection that I have with folks. Maybe it was because I was born and raised in a small town, um, but it is easier for me to communicate uh, with seniors, and I feel a, a great amount of empathy for um, what it is that they're trying to accomplish in their older years because I can see myself wanting to have as much as I possibly can in those last years as well. Sure. Well, clearly – You've got a passion and a love for this industry. And uh, if we're going to get real for a second, though, it does face a ton of challenge operationally. Mm -hmm. And then you also touched on uh, what we're going to talk about as well, which is uh, difficulty in keeping some of these places staffed or getting quality applicants. And so what we're talking about is workforce. So what are some of these problems that you've encountered in terms of, of workforce in the industry? Well, um, you know, there's always been just a, I think that when, when I look back at my career, there was always that, that struggle to, to keep the food service department staffed in the front of house. Cause mainly we were using, we we're using younger, younger, the younger generation, a lot of high school kids, maybe some college students, um, who were serving in the dining room. And a lot of times, you know, the kids would come in, they would work in the summer months when they were out of school, there was always a big push to talk to kids right before the school season to say, are you going to drop down to part-time? Are you going to continue working? A lot of, a lot of parents wanted their kids to, to leave that summer job because they wanted to focus on their studies, which is, which is very understandable. But we face that every year. So we, we got really creative and looking at how we could, you know, maybe a, a student can only work one day a week. Maybe their parents says, okay, you can work Saturdays or Sundays. You can work the weekends, but you can't work during the week. Um, so we would try to get ahead of that months before the, or weeks before the school year would start. Um, and those were some of the biggest difficulties we had. Now we're looking at every department that's struggling. We're, we have low unemployment rates. Um, we have a growing number of people entering the, the, the senior housing um, market. Uh, moving into the senior housing market, and they are coming in. They're younger. They have more demands, um, and we have a lot more people on assisted living services. So, as a as a as a placement service agent here in Tucson, I really thought when I started my business seven years ago that I would be working with independent 
folks who were like, I'm ready to sell the home. I don't want to do the lawn care anymore. And I want to go have a lifestyle that affords me um, um, no household chores and more time to go golfing and to take trips and to go see my family. And what, what, what the reality has been is that I would say 80% of my clients have a great need. Uh, it's just not a need of I can't take care of my home anymore. It's a need that I need help with my medications. I need help with bathing. I need help with dressing. I need help with transfer. So that has put a, a lot of the tilt into the, into the um, model from a mixture of independent and assisted living into a lot more assisted living, which requires a lot more care staff. So I see that as being our biggest struggle facing the industry now is having enough people to provide the care for the people living with us. Do you think the problem is in getting the people in the door or retaining them once you've got them there? I believe that those are both, both correct. Okay. (laughs) You know, we have to be really good at recruiting. And then once we get people, we get good people. We have to really, we have to work to keep them there. Um, because again, we're all vying for the same pool of caregivers and there's not enough caregivers to go around. And as more retirement communities are being built, because we know statistically that we don't have enough, uh, beds or apartments to fill the demand that's coming. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one aspect. The, um, the idea that once we have the the uh, the caregivers in the community we've we've done a good job up front as far as making ourselves a, a an employer of choice uh, a great place to work um, where where staff feels supported and they're not being burned out um, how do we how do we how do we keep them there with us and I think that that's where a lot of the industry struggles um, I think that once they have somebody in the door. Um, we can't go revert back to old ways saying, okay, well, they got a job, you know, they're not going to leave this job. Um, people are leaving jobs at, at, at an alarming rate nowadays and they're not leaving. I think that, you know, a lot of the industry says people are leaving for money. There are, there are, there's always going to be a segment of people that'll, that'll hop, job hop for 50 cents more an hour. But for the majority of people, if they feel valued, if they feel like their work is something that they can go home at night and feel good about. If they feel supported in their own families through their employer, I believe that that is key to um, retaining high quality staff. Sure. And so when I, when I say, when I say that, you know, how do you as an employer uh, make a difference in in an employee's life and how do you connect with their families? Um, it's, it's, it's not, it's a fine line to travel. You don't, you don't want to cross a personal line, but you, you need to be aware enough of what's going on in your employees' lives and what's important to them. And you need to help them to be able to keep those important moments, if you will, intact and allow them the opportunity to not miss them. Um, that could be anywhere from a a granddaughter's first play at school, you know, a a mother's son's first t-ball game. Those are all things that, you know, when you get to know your employees and you have a relationship with them, you'll know these things. And once you know something about someone um, and what's important to them, if you can create an environment where you're not allowing employees to miss those moments, they will become much more um, dedicated to, to you as an employer. Yeah. 
for sure. Environment is definitely a huge factor. And in, in coming from the restaurant business myself, I think one of the environmental factors that leads to employees either being stressed out or not being comfortable is when facilities, restaurants, communities, whatever we choose to call them, when they use their labor as kind of a a tool to leverage their profit. And then you end up with companies that just cut their labor forces to skeleton crews. And then the employees that are there, they're super frustrated because they don't have any support. They're always under the gun. And I, I think it often stems from owners and operators putting a percentage goal as part of their budget rather than really looking at their operations and seeing if that if that fits their budget before they move forward with their plans. Um, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. I agree with that. And, you know, I would add to that too, is that as, as operators, we tend to, we tend to sometimes focus on the numbers right. of our operations. Um, and of course we have to keep our eye on the numbers. We have to be profitable. We have to be able to maintain the communities and we have to maintain uh, proper staffing. Um, but when we, look at managing by numbers entirely, um, we miss a lot of the opportunities, as you said, you know, when you're cutting staffing to make those numbers, um, that, that's just, that's not going to work out in the long term. It's just, it's very short sighted. Um, so I think when we, we, we look at our employees and, and we, we think about what it is that needs to be done to improve revenue, uh, there's other ways to take a look at that. I mean, I, you can, when you're meeting your numbers, I mean, there's, there's either spend the money and, and look at opportunities to grow revenue through new programs, new, um, new revenue sources that residents and their family members would, would see a value in and want to pay for. Um, I believe that that's the, that's the way to go. Because when you start thinking about laying off employees, how many of those employees come back, especially in this market? If you lay somebody off today, they're going to have a job by the afternoon. If you lay them off in the morning, they're going to be working again that afternoon. And you're not going to get that employee back. Well, I shouldn't say you're not, but... In all likelihood, yeah. High probability, you're not going to get that employee back. So then if somebody really took a look at the numbers and what it costs us to recruit, what it costs us to get those people in the door, to get them oriented, uh, to get their uniforms... Uh, to get them to fit into the community, that's that could be that could be six solid months of training and getting that person comfortable and getting them in a in a position where they can be successful in their jobs. And if we look at cycling those people through and we're constantly training and recruiting and hiring, we're spending an exorbitant amount of money doing that when it doesn't take much. Um, create a culture where the, the employees feel supported and, and, and in return can support each other. Um, I, I truly believe that given the opportunity, employees want to be able to help each other. If there's a system in a, in a, in a, in a community that's fostering that kind of behavior. Um, an example would be, I was working at a community a couple of years ago and um, it was a difficult day. Somebody had called in because it was a single mom. They had a, a child who was sick with the flu or some kind of cold daycare would not allow them to come in. She had to call off from work. I'm sure this employee did not want to call off from work. I'm sure she didn't want to miss the day, uh, and the pay, but what el what other alternative did they have? So instead of the, the manager I was working with at that community, 
calling and saying, look, I'm really sorry that your child is sick. Um, I'm going to do the best I can do here to have you have your ship covered. Uh, have you, have you, do you have time to make some calls with some of the other people? I'll start making calls. Let's make this a team effort to, to, to make sure that we can support you because you're not having a good morning and we can still make sure that we're covered so that our residents get good care. You know, it's been said a long time ago and I learned this a long time ago at, at leisure care actually, where, you know, there's a, there's an emotional bank account and we have to be able to make deposits in our employees, emotional bank account and make sure their needs are met. Because then when our needs are there and we need them to come in, um, we're more apt to get a, a, a positive response when we ask for help. But you can't just keep taking and taking and taking and piling more shifts or asking somebody to stay for that double shift because somebody else didn't show up. You can't keep doing that and never giving back something because you're going to emotionally drain that bank account. And sooner or later, that employee is going to be burned out, not feel supported, and they will leave. Um, I don't think really people who are who are in the mindset to work in senior housing, they want to give good care. They want to do a good job. They like being around seniors. If you don't like seniors, you're not going to be in this industry. So when we when we cut down the time for them to have compassion and caring and understanding with with our residents, um, we make them feel not so good about their job either. So I believe that that. That is something else that we need to address because as a person now who works not only in large, large facilities, I work with a lot of smaller communities. I work with very small care homes and I'm seeing a lot of caregiving staff that I've known who have worked in our local market in larger communities for a long time. And now they're working in smaller care home settings. And I kind of scratched my head at that because I'm like, are the care homes paying more? And in fact, I found out some are competitive. Most are not paying more. Most don't have any benefits. So I started asking some of the folks that I run into when I go to these small care homes, like, oh, you know, I saw you at ABC Retirement Community last year. You know, when did you make the move? Why'd you make the move? Every single person I encountered said the same thing. I have 10 residents here. I have more time. So when Margaret is upset this morning, I can spend a little extra time with her and we can talk about something and get her mind off of it. And I can, I can have a good conversation and maybe help her emotionally. When you look at what's going on in the large communities, we have been on a timetable for a long time. Um, we have now, you know, looked and analyzed assisted living to the point where it's like, well, it takes eight minutes to perform this task and six minutes to perform this task and five minutes to perform this task. And we hold our caregivers accountable to that. So now you've got a caregiver that's going in to do a five-minute task, which may be to help somebody button up, get dressed, tie their shoes, get their hair combed, get ready for the day. And if that person is upset or having a bad day or might not be moving as fast as they normally do because of arthritis or rheumatism or backache or sciatic nerves or whatever the case may be, now she has to spend, he or she has to spend 18 minutes with that person. Well, now they've just missed the person next door. They were supposed to be there. 15 minutes ago and the other person. And, and so now we have set a caregiver up to fail for the rest of the day because now every place she goes, she's going to be late or he or she's going to be late. Um, they're going to have residents who are going to be upset and they're going to go home at the end of the day feeling not so good about the job they did that day. And it's not really their fault. Um, so I'm seeing that the caregivers who have made the leap out of the large, large communities are, are doing so because 
they go home feeling better at the end of the night, that they have more time to provide not only hands-on care, but emotional care. They can they can actually be there for someone who's just really having a bad day. And that sounds to me in terms of not just a timeline, but it, it sounds like if we're to meet these these timelines, then it really is just the fact that there's just not enough people to perform that job on the payroll at any one given time. Correct. Well, thank you, Cecil. I definitely appreciate getting your opinions on the very complicated topic of workforce management. And we can spend so much more time talking about this, but there's a ton of other cool stuff we're going to want to dig into. So for now, we're going to take a quick break. Let's call this part one. And when we come back, we're going to tie up our conversation about workforce and move into the equally challenging world of operations. So tune into the next episode to hear part two of my epic discussion with Cecil Rinker, Operations Genie, and get the 411 on how to identify and overcome those nasty operational challenges. Stick around. <laughs> 